You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here's your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. My guest today is Thomas Eddick. He's the author of Catching Your Breath in Grief. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Uh, Thomas, man, uh, I'm really happy to have you because your work in the field of grief uh, has been amazing. And as I look at your book here, Catching Your Breath in Grief, uh, what was the motivation for this book? The motivation for the book was to reach out directly in ways I hadn't in my earlier publications to the bereaved themselves. Uh, It's a heart to heart. Let's think about how we find our way into this world and living well in it. And let's look at what happens when someone dies. And let's look at what the struggles are in putting your life back together uh, after you've experienced a loss. and I try to capture as much of the, the wisdom as I've accumulated from listening to the stories of hundreds of grieving people uh, and, and pay it back into uh, the lives of people who really need it. I want to get a little background just for our listeners, for the sake of context. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, about 25 miles straight west of Chicago. How did you end up in Canada, where you're living right now? Because I'm a very sensible man. I was teaching philosophy in Ohio. I had been doing it nearly 25 years. My first marriage collapsed, and I met this wonderful woman who was teaching at the University of British Columbia, and we got married, and we had this tough decision. Do we want to live in the black swamp of northwest Ohio? Or do we want to live in one of the most beautiful cities on earth, Vancouver? We chose the latter, and I took early retirement. (laughs) I find that many people that write about grief write from personal experience. Uh, What took you to be an expert in the field of grief? It's kind of a complicated story, but I'll, I'll simplify my families were large. My father was one of 10 who survived. My mother was one of nine who survived. I had over 30 aunts and uncles as I was growing up and about 30 to 35 cousins. Uh, My dad was 18 years older than my mother. uh, So his relatives began dying while I was growing up and letters came into the house Uh, And my mother would always read the letters aloud about cousin so-and-so or aunt or uncle so-and-so who was dying or who had died. So it became familiar to me. I studied philosophy um, as an undergraduate and then in graduate school, went off to teach philosophy. And it turns out the kind of philosophy that I studied sort of disposed me to look at human experiences and analyze them and learn to describe them well uh, and challenged me to think about how to live a meaningful life uh, in conditions of uncertainty uh, where suffering is inevitable. 
and I went to work at Bowling Green State University, where they were establishing a new College of Health and Human Services, uh, including programs in nursing, social work, gerontology, and the like. And at one point, it occurred to me that a person could teach a course on uh, issues in death and dying to students in that kind of college. And a lot of my um, colleagues were developing applied philosophy courses in medical ethics, business ethics, philosophy of law, and the like. So it fit with the culture I was working in. My father died when I was in graduate school. And uh, I returned from his funeral and felt like I wanted to talk to one of my uh, professors, but I could not identify one who felt like he would be approachable on something personal like the loss of a loved one. And I vowed at that point that I wanted to be the kind of philosopher who could be approached uh, to have a good conversation about death and dying, grief and loss. So all of that sort of combined together and my death and dying course took off like a rocket. The demand kept growing and growing, and I started listening to my students, and they taught me that the kind of thinking that was common at the time about grief and loss uh, was not something that they were experiencing at all. <laughs> so <laughs> I tried to capture what they, uh, what they uh, told me, and I came up with the idea of grieving as relearning the world or how to live in the world after a loss. And your work has led you to receiving a Life Achievement Award, right, from the Association of Death and Dying. Talk to us about that. Well, um, I attended my first Association for Death and Dying, uh, Death Education and Counseling uh, in 1979 and met a lot of leaders in the field. And I was just, I'd been teaching for five or six years. Uh, these were kind of pioneering times, but I feel like I'm kind of second generation. The, the real pioneers did important work in the 50s and 60s. It wasn't well known, it wasn't well circulated. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came along in 1969 and published On Death and Dying, which was really about the experiences of dying persons. And she talked about five stages and so on. And I came into a context where these things had been discussed for 10 or 15 years and more and more people were starting to teach and when i got to the adec meeting the association for death education and counseling meeting i met a lot of other people who were working solo wherever they were they were they were the only persons who were uh, contending with these issues wondering about them so it was great to meet like-minded people even if uh, from a distance uh, and that association became my sort of professional home. Uh, and I've now attended uh, over 35 meetings over a period of 40 years uh, <laughs> and met the leaders in the field in the United States. And then there's a, an international work group on death, dying and bereavement that um, features leaders uh, from over 25 countries around the world. And I've been a member, it's by invitation only, of that organization for about 30 years. So I've associated with the folks who have been thinking seriously about this for a long time. And that's twisted me a little bit, but helped me in lots of ways, too. And your contribution has been immense. So your book, Catching Your Breath in Grief, in part one, The Breath of Life, what do you mm -hmm. want your readers to get from that? 
I, I really want them to think about how it is that in the course of living through the early years of our lives up to adulthood, we learn how to live, uh, somehow get by in everyday life, shape an everyday life that feels pretty good to us with the help of lots of support from others, uh, and pour our care and love into our surroundings. We come to be uh, attached to things and places and foods and music. Um, we talk about soul music and soul food and so on. It's, it's the food and music of your home, the place where you made yourself at home. And part one is about how do you make yourself at home? And you pour your cares and loves into your surroundings, uh, others who share life with you. Uh, you wonder about where you fit in the greater scheme of things. You might have some thoughts and feelings and experiences of uh, connecting with uh, a kind of a something more. You might uh, be religiously inclined, spiritually inclined. We're all spiritual uh, and some of us become religious. Um, and uh, we have souls and spirits and I think of our souls as the part of us that makes ourselves at home and the spirit as the part of us that stretches into the new, reaches for more and better, struggles with um, challenges and hurts, uh, uh, trying to find meaning and suffering and the like. And through the years, we become better and better at this. And eventually we find ourselves pretty well settled in the world. But that first part is about how does that happen? And some of it is very practical. And some of it involves sort of engaging with challenges that don't go away. They're not like simple problems. I call them mysteries. They're constants in life. And we dance with our limitations. We dance with our vulnerability to suffering. Uh, we dance with our being small and insignificant on the grand scale of things. And we try to find ways of understanding that these things are okay. There are limitations, but they don't make our life meaningful, uh, meaningless. Um, so the first part is how do we put together a meaningful life for ourselves? And I like uh, there's a subtopic, life support. And there's uh -huh. a line, let me read. You said, we are on life support from conception until death. I, th I find that such a powerful concept because we live life without that imagination. We don't even think that we're on life support. Can you talk more about that? Well, I, yeah. the danger in our lives is that we'll become so invested in our ego, trying to control everything uh, and accumulate all the good stuff that we would like to have for ourselves and so on, that we forget that um, we are given far more in this life than we ever established uh, for ourselves. We are absolutely at the mercy of someone else caring for us and carrying us through our infancy and, and childhood uh, to adulthood. But honest to goodness, we are situated in a world that has lifelines 
reaching out to us and offering us most everything that we have in our lives. And we're just prideful and foolish uh, to think that most of what we have and most of the people in our lives and most of the things that matter to us are a product of our own efforts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just wrong to think that way. And I, I think of, uh, there's a metaphor in that first part of uh, how our souls and spirits together weave a kind of web of life that is ours and is unique. And it, it's comprised of cares and loves and things that matter to us and interests and things that we do in life, our life pattern uh, and our life story unfold through the efforts of these deep parts of ourselves. Um, and the world has been offering us all of this possibility since we were born. And if there weren't food and water and clean air uh, and people to be with and live with and to love and be loved by, we would be nothing. <laughs> and we think that we are everything uh, without paying attention to how, um, I mean, just, just take some of these situations you see in the news uh, every summer where it gets too hot uh, or where there's flooding uh, and so on. Really? We're ready to deal with that ourselves? <laughs> I mean, thank God somebody's there uh, yes. to take care of stuff. Or, you know, we just came out of, uh, and we're not out of it yet, out of a plague. Uh, COVID. Now, did you feel like you were really in charge and in control of everything there? <laughs> well, we've been on life support, and thank goodness there have been public health people who know what they're doing. Or how many of us would have died? And it was bad enough that as many died as did, but uh, we've got medical systems, we've got plumbers, we've got electricians, we've got ministers. We've got people raising our food. We've, <laughs> that's life support. So you feel like the ego then gets in the way of that acknowledgement of the realism that we're on life support. I, I think so. I really do. Uh, and uh, I, I really think that we are here by uh, something like the grace of the universe. And you may have a name for it. Uh, and lots of people have different names for it and so on. But... We are on the receiving end of a giving that makes it, it makes it possible for us to stay alive from day to day. Uh, and if we could cultivate an attitude of gratitude uh, in response to that grace and, and humbly acknowledge how little we are responsible for and how much we should be grateful for, we'd live a different life. And I think in part the book uh, encourages that kind of thinking. I hope you found it that it did. With that, we'll take a little break. Our guest is Thomas Eric. He's the author of Catching Your Breath in Grief. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation. Uh, could you talk to us about the five stages of grief? 
The five stages of grief are associated with the thinking of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who uh, wrote that book I mentioned on death and dying in 1969. And she said that uh, the dying on her observation go through five stages. Um, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And even journalists these days seem to think that that is definitive stuff and they keep referring to it in, the, in their news columns and, and so on. It was not intended originally to capture anything that grieving people go through, but it came to be thought of as five stages of grief. Uh, and if you scratch the average citizen, more of them than any other would say that that is the definitive idea of what grieving is all about. And I believe that those five stages are really about ego defenses and how powerless they are in the face of suffering uh, and death uh, and grief especially. I think of uh, denial as an attempt to stay in permanent retreat from a persistent reality that's there for you to deal with uh, and retreat fails. Uh, anger, I don't know if you've ever dealt with little children when they get angry uh, and adults do the same sort of thing. When they're angry, lots of times they're trying to control things. Uh, and if, I, if I'm mad enough and so on, uh, mom and dad will go along and I'll get what I want, right? Well, people grow out of that, supposedly. Um, anyway, anger as a stage of grieving fails because you can't control what is uncontrollable, which is the fact that this person has died. Uh, bargaining is an attempt to negotiate with something that is non-negotiable. So what happens when your usual defenses, uh, which could be summed up as fight or, or fly um, defenses, when those don't work because you're usually in ego mode, it's depressing. <laughs> this isn't working. My, my usual ways of operating aren't working for me. And eventually then you come to what they call acceptance, which is acknowledging the reality of what's happened or is happening in the case of dying. And to say that that is the end of grieving, as opposed to the point where you begin, uh, seems wrong to me. <laughs> uh, how do you deal with reality if you're pretending it isn't there or you can control the uncontrollable and so on? You don't do it very well. When you realize that this is a kind of thing that's going to require you to change in response to it mm. because you can't change it, then you have something else to do besides going through those five stages. And my idea that we have to relearn how to live in a changed world is my way of capturing what else you have to do. Another thing about these five stages is, and the usual understanding of them, they're things that we go through. They happen to us. We're passive as we go through these stages. Um, grieving requires that we actively engage with what has happened. Two things have happened. A person has died and suffering has come over us. We experience brokenness 
and we experience all kinds of sorrows and agitating and difficult, challenging emotions. Uh, and relearning how to live in the world involves engaging with that brokenness, the changes in our lives that are causing us distress and engaging with the suffering and trying to come to terms with it or move beyond it. But yeah, that, that's, I mean, those are uh, incredible words there. Because <laughs> so I love you're you. saying, can, I, can I have you as an agent? <laughs> <laughs> no, because you're really helping people understand these concepts. They are much deeper than just simple five stages of grief. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of depth and nuance to those, you know, concepts out there. And uh, in part two of your book, you speak about, you know, grief. It's, it's a tragic, you're right, somebody has died and that has shattered our world. And then it, it leads to an ego, our egos being in crisis. Could you talk more about that? Actually, we wind up with egos in crisis, souls in crisis, and spirits in crisis. Yes. The ego in crisis um, is desperate to find something uh, that it can control in some way. It's, it's afraid that the world has fallen into chaos, where it's going to be uh, powerless and helpless for the rest of its life. Uh, and the way uh, uh, an ego gets through crisis is um, finding what it can do something about. If it can't do, if it can't change the reality, it can change how it lives in response to the reality. It can, it can return to doing what egos can do, which is live practically. And I would say humbly as opposed to too proudly <laughs> and so on. And then the poor soul is feeling like it can't be at home in the world again without this person. Mm. Uh, and uh, the soul's got to find some way of still feeling at home. Uh, and it turns out they have, um, uh, they're not the sole survivor. There are all kinds of other people who are also surviving and trying to figure out how they can live. And so you wind up working with uh, your families and so on to put things back together. And, and your, your spirit thinks there's no hope. All hope is gone. Uh, it's been erased from the world, and that's its crisis. It's got to find something to be hopeful uh, about. And then crisis shared? We don't typically grieve alone. We grieve with others who have also lost a family member or a member of the community or a good friend uh, and so on. And here we are. Uh, in a situation where it's not clear how we're going to go forward uh, as the families we've been, as the friendship circles we've been, uh, as the communities uh, we've been. Uh, and goodness knows we grieve in different ways and contend with what has happened to us in different ways. And unfortunately, an awful lot of grieving people will tell you that it can be a time when you learn who your real friends are uh, and who the ones are you can work with and putting your uh, friendships and families and communities back together and who the people are who disappoint you, don't want to uh, work with you at all. Um, uh, people lose friendships and gain friendships uh, when uh, someone dies. Um, uh, a family member, 
just doesn't come through or your best friend just doesn't come through. And it turns out that there are three other friends who you thought of as acquaintances, kind of friends who come through uh, with aces. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're there for you. They listen to you. They, uh, they hug you. They uh, struggle with you and, uh, uh, helping you deal with your children who are also grieving uh, and the like. Uh, and so it's um, families experience what individuals experience. Um, their daily life patterns are not going to be the same. Uh, and their life histories are not going to be the same because one of the major characters who was expected to be part of that history isn't there. So you're going to, you're together going to be living without a father, brother, um, spouse, uh, and so on. I feel like we are in the, in the classroom of one of the greatest minds in grave because <laughs> our list, this, <laughs> we are all in your classroom right now, continue with the concept of separation and then inertia. Oh, I, I think, I think that, um, one of the the most difficult um, aspects of grief is this experience of separation uh, and a feeling that all is lost. Uh, and the thing that you want most is to be together with the person who has died again. And this is the one thing that you definitely cannot have they, they will not be in a room with you again. They will not laugh with you again. They will not put their arms around you again, and so on. And it is dangerous for people to want something that is impossible for them to have, hmm. because you can become preoccupied with that desire, uh, and desiring the impossible takes you to a place of real darkness where there's nothing you can do. Yeah. And I think it underlying the desire to be with this person is a deeper desire to continue loving this person and to continue feel, feeling loved by this person. And both of these things are possible. Can we love one another in separation? I'm looking at you in an empty studio. Look, you're looking at me in a room that's just got furniture behind it. And I can assure you there are not other people in this room. All right. Yeah. When you came to the studio, when I came to this uh, dining room setting and so on, did I stop loving? Did you stop loving the people that you love who are still alive? No. No. Well, I didn't either. Most of the time, we are separated from the people we love who are alive. We must know how to love them in separation. Everything that we do in loving them in separation right now, we can do after they've died. We just can't do what requires their physical presence. You can laugh about your brother and the last conversation you had with him, and he's not there with you now. I can cry about the last conversation that I had with uh, someone. I, we can talk about what we learned from. We can express our admiration for. We can praise. 
we can feel sad for, we can follow the example of, we can do all kinds of things in separation from the people that we love. We can feel loved by them in separation. Thank God my wife, my children, and so on are uh, loving me right now, though they're not in the room with me. And you can feel the same thing. Uh, we just have to get past that agony of not being able to do what we want to do in their physical presence. And we can find uh, how all that we did loving them in separation is still possible. Well, that would take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Soleil Bem, and we continue our conversation with Thomas. Part three of your book, Catching Your Breath, could you talk to us more about that? Well, I, I think of it as, as talking about um, the challenges of grieving uh, as an active process of relearning how to live uh, in, the, in the aftermath of someone's having died. And I think of the relearning as involving um, learning how to carry the sorrow of missing this person, learning how to uh, live meaningfully in our changed surroundings, returning home to our physical surroundings, returning home to our relationships with other persons, uh, the wider community, uh, possibly our, our relationship with God, uh, and so on. And the third thing is learning how to uh, love in separation, uh, learning how to continue loving this person who's died. Um, and I think of the process is a combination of returning to the familiar and seeing if we can make ourselves at home there, uh, or if some of it has lost its charm and won't be attractive to us anymore, uh, and stretching into the new. So you have a life pattern. It cannot be just as it was but it can have a lot of the familiar in it and some, some new things that you do or some new ways of being with uh, what's still there. Uh, and uh, you return to the familiar, but you inevitably stretch into something new. Uh, there may be new relationships. There may be new ways of arranging the furniture. There may be new ways of arranging the closets. <laughs> there may be new relationships that come into your life later. Um, lots of opportunities for reshaping your life and 
redirecting the course of your life story. You're gonna go into chapters of your life where there's a missing character, but there may be some new characters and there are familiar characters and some relationships will deepen and some will kind of fade. Um, is this similar to meaning making? Uh, well, meaning making and meaning finding. Yes. I think, I think when we um, return to the familiar, we find that a lot of the familiar still holds meaning for us. We're not making it meaningful. Uh, it's, I still like this music. <laughs> I, I still like this food. I, I'm so glad I live in this neighborhood and so on. In this chapter, what I like, uh, you spoke about using sorrow-friendly practices. Uh, what yeah. are those? Well, <laughs> there are lots of them. Um, they are practice, I, I think, bad practice in our culture is to try to avoid sorrow, uh, try to avoid suffering. Um, there are people who write about grief who suggest that um, you have all of these emotions and what you need to do is express them. I think it's more important to pay attention to them than it is to express them in any particular way. Uh, I think of um, emotions as analogous to pains. Think of physical pains. If you got a minor physical pain, you kind of ignore it and move on. If you got one that is uh, persistent, doesn't go away, uh, your leg really hurts. Uh, and today's as bad as yesterday, or it's worse. Uh, the pain says, pay attention to me. Maybe go and have a doctor look at this and see if he can find something about your, uh, what's going on in your leg. Uh, physical pains and suffering call for attention when they're serious and persistent. I think emotions do the same thing. I looked up the word emotion once because I wondered what that little E was in front of the word motion, yes. it turns out it means without motion. And what emotions will do is they'll stop you in your tracks. They will hold you your attention until you give it the attention that they want. And when you look at uh, your ego pain, you'll notice the feelings of helplessness. And what you, your ego is crying for is something to control, something to do something about practically. And start really small. If you manage to feed yourself and take care of that basic need uh, and so on, or you manage to tell someone that, you know, I'm not doing very well making meals right now. Could you bring me a little food now and again? I really appreciate the casserole you brought me <laughs> and so on. Uh, and uh, your soul is telling you that, um, uh, you, you need someone to love you, someone to care for you, to someone to look at your needs and help you meet them. You need someone to love. You need to be able to express your love somewhere and your cares in some ways. Start small, um, but work into the bigger stuff. And your spirit is telling you you're feeling hopeless. You need something to hope about. You're feeling uh, as if life is meaningless. 
what you need is to find ways of living meaningfully again within your family, in your home, in your community, uh, and so on. Now, sorrow-friendly practices are things that help you pay attention to your sorrows rather than running for them or uh, from them or trying to muffle them by drinking yourself into a stupor or taking drugs or, or running 100 miles without thinking about what you're suffering and so on. So what are some sorrow-friendly practices? Talk to someone. That's a sorrow-friendly practice. Write a journal or keep notes or record your thoughts and feelings. That's a sorrow-friendly practice. Uh, partake of or participate in rituals. That's a sorrow-friendly practice. Um, join a support group. That's a sorrow-friendly practice. You meet with other people to talk about the kinds of things you've all been experiencing. Um, seek out a professional if you've got a, a really heavy thing that, that feels like you can't handle by yourself. Um, uh, write some poems, um, paint, draw, uh, walk in nature and feel connected again with the ground of your being and all the, all the stuff that you are being provided. Um, uh, eventually you can uh, maybe join in some simple joint efforts, you know, spend a day in a soup kitchen uh, and feed others uh, and feel that you're participating in meaningful ways again and you're responding to some of what your soul and spirit have been longing for. Um, spend time with your children. Uh, <laughs> spend time with people who love you. And so those are sorrow-friendly practices. Those are incredible examples. Thank you for sharing your sorrow-friendly practices. And I think uh, I really appreciate this moment with you. Dr. Eric, thank you very much uh, for being on the show. You are more than welcome. This has been good fun. All right. Thank you. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.